Happy Monday, everyone. Today is March 8th, which is International Women's Day. And I couldn't be happier than to bring you an episode with two women from 500 Women Scientists. Today, we're going to talk about being a black woman in science, freaking out about your new braided style in the lab, and the importance of not just representation, but reparations. Listen, we are glisten, no more friction, take a seat. We are driven with ambition, no more prisons, hit delete. Abolition is the mission, these conditions, the receipt. No surrender, no retreat. Always fight until we free, till we free. I just need to breathe. Why not let us be? I just want some peace. Should be loving me. I just need to breathe. Why not let us be? We just want some peace, followed up with equity. Black is beautiful, don't you forget. Not disputable, come with respect. My melanin, beautiful, what you expect. Black is beautiful, don't you forget, don't forget. I feel like it wouldn't be appropriate to start before giving a quote from Mae Jemison, one of my personal heroes. She said, don't let anyone rob you of your imagination, your creativity, or your curiosity. It's your place in the world. It's your life. Go on and do all you can with it and make it the life you want to live. Mae Jemison was the first African-American woman in space. But did you also know that Jemison is a trained dancer who built her own dance studio in her home as a child? She began college at Stanford University to study chemical engineering when she was only 16 years old. And... Even more shockingly, even though she was the first black woman in space, she's actually afraid of heights. Stay tuned to learn more about the importance of black women in science with 500 Women Scientists. Well, hello, Nicole and Lauren. How are you guys today? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm good too. I'm trying, (laughs) you know, just barely survived 2020. So just really trying in 2021. (laughs) That's all we can do. I know. (laughs) Doesn't, doesn't feel any different from 2020 though. (laughs) Um, I am telling myself that it is different and better and that's what we have to do right now. So, (laughs) so what group are you guys with? So we are with um, the nonprofit organization 500 Women Scientists, um, and I am currently the interim executive director of 500 Women Scientists, and Nicole. Yeah, so I am the PODS project administrator, and we'll, I think, get into that later about the specifics of the roles. Um, Always happy to have other Black women on the podcast, Um, and just also in general, in my life, uh, and I think also within science, 
it's so rare to meet other black women and also to meet women that have no interest in muting themselves or tone policing themselves just for the sake of being scientists. And Mm -hmm. I think that that has been a really huge thing for me with creating decolonizing science is that I felt like I could either be a scientist or be black, you know, like to just be completely honest. And I think this has been a great opportunity to kind of bridge the gap between the two. And I was wondering in your experience, what has your journey been in bridging the gap between outreach and science and activism? Oh, that's a whole word. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) You want to take that first? Gotcha. So I guess I'll talk first about what brought me to the field of science. So my master's degree is in marine science. However, um, recently I've pivoted to mentoring and supporting historically underrepresented students in STEM um, at Brown University. And so... um, you know, as a young girl, my parents really exposed me to different areas of science. And I'm from the south suburbs of Chicago. And we would always visit the Shedd Aquarium, Museum of Science and Industry, the Field Museum, um, and other museums around us. And so I, one thing that comes to mind is I remember bringing a pad of paper and a pen with me and just writing down everything that I read at the Shedd Aquarium. And then my first real experience in the marine science field was um, the Shedd Aquarium had this high school marine biology program um, for Midwest undergraduate or for Midwest high school students. And so I applied and was accepted into that program. And then I think there was a week of classes that we went to at the Shedd and then we got to go to the Bahamas for five days, which was so awesome. I loved that. (laughs) That was my first like real interaction research experience I got to snorkel for the first time oh I'm so jealous (laughs) (laughs) we did um, plankton toes we did beach cleanup and from then on I'm like oh my goodness how can I you know how can I do this Um, however you know there's not there's really not any marine scientists that I had known of at that time I mean you know, now being in the field, I've, you know, come across a few, but it was like really hard for me to kind of get motivated and to get started. So I think knowing that there are other young girls or other women who are struggling in fields like this and other fields, it just, it keeps me motivated and going to, you know, recruit other Black women um, in STEM. Yeah, um, I think I am like Nicole in that I didn't I didn't fall in love with science. I don't know if I would say I even love science now. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I wouldn't call it like, you know, a love, a maybe a love affair because I came about it from the standpoint of medicine. I always wanted to be a physician. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I had opportunities both in high school and in college that allowed for me to do research. And those opportunities were big for me because they were paid. Um, and so that was something I didn't have, you know, the luxury of doing things that weren't for money. Um, and I benefited in that I had opportunities through the NIH um, and through like local opportunities to do science for money. And I ended up 
becoming or majoring in neuroscience because it met all my pre-med requirements. It was just easier. Um, and so that's how I came to neuroscience. And then I like I fell in love with the brain. I love the brain. So I will say that. I don't know if I love science as a whole field, but I love the brain and I rock with neuroscience. Um, and so that was how I got there. And then that bridge between science and community has been really difficult. Um, I think it's kind of something that's like been innate. I know for me and a lot of people, like, of course we want to make that bridge, but I think that the academy and the resources are not there for us to do that and be rewarded for our work, um, which I found in college, I had a little bit more probably support in my, when I started my uh, pursuit of my doctorate, I did not have support from my primary um, PI or private investigator, sorry, the person who was in charge, who I worked in their lab, um, she did not really support it. And she told me many times that my priorities were messed up. Um, she did not, I had to hide when I was doing activities and outreach with the community because yeah, it would be like, she always questioned like, you know, what are you here to do? Like, what are you paid to do? And so I found that it was actually really difficult. And I think it was, really with how they kind of, everyone wants you to work in the community, but no one wants you to take time away from lab to do that. So, you know, so now I'm working 50 to 60 hours in lab and then spending my own money and grad students only make, and we were, we were highly paid grad students and we only made $32,000 a year. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, that was the high end at our, like, compared to some of the other majors. So 32,000 a year, and I'm spending my my own money on resources for these outreach events. I'm having to lie to my PI about it. So I'm working, you know, 50 to 60 hours in lab, going to a weekend and then doing mentorship, you know, with the local domestic violence shelter. So it, it, it got real like that very often. And I think a lot of people don't have the support they need to be in community and they're not rewarded for it. Not like they should be. Not even that, but just like, I always feel like in STEM, I've had to work twice as hard to get noticed or even recognized. It's like, why is that? Like, we're doing such great work, but then we, we have to hide it or, you know, take a Saturday or Sunday <laughs> and just go above and beyond to, you know, help support these organizations. Yeah. Right. And what do you feel are some of the costs of being a part of outreach and activism and being a scientist? So you already mentioned that you feel like you have to kind of like hide from your PI, what you're doing, which for everybody that's listening, PI means? PI is your principal investigator. So that's just the uh, person who's in charge of your lab, who you work under. And so they're a faculty member. I mean, it's, it's super taxing. Like I said, I that's what drew me to 500 women scientists because I felt like I wasn't getting that, you know, activism piece in my life. Um, you know, working at universities, you're very kind of like constricted with the work that you can do. And, you know, I, I've always been, you know, a strong supporter of historically underrepresented students and women in science. So to see an organization like actively, you know, trying to recruit and to amplify um, the voices of not only women, but women of color in STEM just really um, stood out to me. I mean, and another thing just from like the Black Lives Movement this summer and the unjust killing of Breonna Taylor, like all those things just like kind of came to a head and we're like, I'm like, what are we doing? Like, we need to, we need to do something 
other than what we're doing because what we're doing now is not working yeah and and that's I think like that's part of the cost right is like when you decide to show up as a scientist and still have that advocacy or activist um, point, it's really difficult because all of these things really weigh on you. I feel like I know a lot of white colleagues who have never had to think about, you know, police shootings, who I'm sure, I remember being in lab and watching the video from Nipsey Hussle being shot. And I remember I had to walk out because I was crying. It just, I went to the bathroom because I just, it was a lot to take in and to yeah. see that and right. And to regularly see that, regularly see right. the abuse and disposure of black bodies is really difficult. And I know I've walked into lab with a chip on my shoulder plenty of times. And my office was very purposefully like black as I uh, yeah as can yeah. be like I had posters like Toni Morrison Ari Lennox James Baldwin I had a whole like tribute to like some of like yeah. the black people I look to for inspiration um and so I think we are like some of the costs are that we are way more perceptive to things going on we carry that emotionally spiritually and that of course affects us for our you know productivity because it's hard to be productive it's hard to analyze papers and exist in a bubble as if all these injustices aren't happening around you especially when you're called to action like when you know how can i you know make things better that definitely impacts my productivity which then makes me look like i'm less than as a scientist when right. i'm not you know i'm, yeah. I'm human yeah and, and i know for me it just took a toll this summer like on my you know, mental health, because it was like every other day something was happening. And it's like, okay, how can we go about our work as if nothing's happening? And then, you know, at my full-time job, like nobody was really talking about it. And it's like, okay, this is ridiculous. Like, why aren't we having these conversations? Like, and just feeling like one time there was like a whole week where I just couldn't do anything. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure a this week. Is oh, only a week. <laughs> <laughs> That's... <laughs> It's just like so sad to think, right? And I, I like, yeah, like we should, I mean, a pandemic alone, right, should be enough to like shut everything down and to just, you know, have everyone take care of like health. But a pandemic on top of racial exasperation, like all of our lives and everything else, it, it's hard to show up as a scientist. And it's hard because a lot of people don't think that scientists should be in on these conversations like scientists don't have a responsibility for racial justice and equity and all those other hot topics quote-unquote hot topics that don't get the care they deserve oh that's a good point that you brought up Lauren in my um one of the roles that I do at Brown is I lead a um a program called uh, Science Friday Faculty Forum and we're trying to like most of these STEM faculty are great and they've really committed to, you know, working to provide an inclusive classroom. But this past uh, month, we were kind of talking about like, how can you talk to students about a lot of these conversations like anti-racist teaching or, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. And granted, like most of them have never had these conversations before. So I'm kind of trying to give them tips on like what to do. And the first thing I tell them is to, uh, you don't need to know the answers, just, um, telling the students that you're here to support them is like, I think what they're looking for. And so doing little things like that can make a huge difference in STEM classrooms. Yeah, I know 
I know that when everything went down this summer, there had been quite a few Black graduate students that, and by quite a few, I mean, I mean like four, because there aren't many of us, (laughs) but there were a few Black graduate students that I really was shocked that I was really shocked because they had no interest in participating in any of the activism that was occurring or having any conversations with their PI about Mm -hmm. the subject matter or even participating in activism from the perspective of using social media. And that was pretty shocking to me. But at the same time, I understood it because in order to be successful in this field, a lot of times you do have to keep your head down. And there's a lot that you sacrifice when you choose to hold your chin high. And for me, it's a non-negotiable part of being a scientist. Mm -hmm. So if there are certain job opportunities or research opportunities that I will miss out on because I take advantage of tutoring you know, Black children in my community, or I decide to be a part of 500 Women Scientists, or I decide to be a podcast, I'm at peace with the fact that that is okay. And that can be really hard for a lot of people to understand. But I think this is part of decolonizing science in that science is not just about data points. It's not just about papers that come out. And I think that we have so much more to contribute to science in coming into science with a decolonized perspective and also in understanding that we are human. Scientists are not just robots and it actually aids in our science, especially when it comes to talking about environmental and socioeconomic determinants of health. I feel like that's really important. I think that there's a lot of There's this notion that in order to be a scientist and to be an effective scientist, you have to be cold, you have to be distant, and you can't really be passionate about these other things and these other fields. And I definitely appreciate 500 Women Scientists for allowing the opportunity for women and non-binary people to come together and, as you mentioned, 500 Women Scientists is more than just 500 people. So at this point, it's a much larger organization that has pods in several different major cities. Why do you feel like that's important? And how do the pods function? How do they work? And how do you feel like they aid our understanding of science and of our community? Yeah, that's a a loaded question. So maybe I'll give an overview quickly of 500 over scientists. They're good. They're like, they're good questions. It's just like, oh man, let me keep track. Um, yes, yeah, so I'll start with giving a quick overview of 500 Women Scientists. Um, so 500 Women Scientists, a nonprofit grassroots organization, meaning that we look to enact change um, in small groups uh, instead of large crowds. So we do this by having pods, which Nicole will talk about in a second. And these are our local chapters. Um, but Overall, the premise of 500 Scientists is that it was started after the 2016 U.S. election um, when Donald Trump was elected, and four women scientists wrote a pledge reaffirming that they were going to still be committed to making science open, inclusive, and accessible to everybody. And so that really birthed the movement, and we're called 500 Women Scientists because they wanted 500 
women scientists to sign on to this pledge. And like within three or four months, there were over 20,000 signatures from all over the world. And that was the beginning of a movement. And so now we um, are working on language to make sure people know that we're more than 500, we're more than just women, um, and we're more than just scientists. We include the entire STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, math, and medicine um, in our purview of you know, fighting for justice and equality and equity and diversity and inclusion, all of those kind of buzzwords. Um, but the nice part is that we've been doing this work for several years now. We're about four and a half years old as an organization. And we do that through um, some initiatives that we have nationally. We have things like Fellowship for the Future, which gives uh, money to women of color who are doing this community work that we talked about. <laughs> so that way they have money and support and just cheerleaders and family to help them through that time. Um, we have Gage, which is a database that allows us to or allows you, anyone can go search for women and gender minorities who are experts in their fields um, who you may not have had a chance to find otherwise. We have um, also like Wikipedia edit-a-thons where we go and we edit Wikipedia pages because I'm sure everyone listening has looked at Wikipedia. I looked at Wikipedia today. <laughs> you know, it is a credible source. Uh, despite what people say, a lot of people use Wikipedia, um, but less than 20% of the biographies are of women. And so we wanted to change that. Um, and so we, we have different movement or projects that allow us to kind of push, this, push it forward. And our mission at the end of the day is to make science more open, inclusive, and accessible by fighting racism, patriarchy, and oppressive societal norms. And so we do a lot of that work through our pods. Um, so I just wanted to um, second what Lauren said that 500 women scientists also welcome self-identifying women on our group. And this includes transgender, non-binary, women of color, women with disabilities and all marginalized genders. And so like Lauren mentioned, um, 500 women scientists has about 500 local chapters now, which is super exciting. And we refer to the local chapters as pods. And over half of those pods are international. And so my job is to help bridge the gap between our pod members and coordinators and our leadership team, whether that be you know, communicating via email or our Slack channel or getting our pod members involved in our various initiatives. And so each pod um, has between one to five coordinators. Um, and I just wanted to talk about a few uh, initiatives that we're working on with our pods. Um, we recently formed a remote pod this past month, uh, which anyone can join. But um, the idea behind this was that it was for people who are constantly moving or who don't want to start a new pod. And so right now we have about 20 members. So that is super exciting. And then we also formed an international committee um, because our leadership team is primarily based in the US. And so we want to better support our international pods and learn about what issues are going on in their countries. And then the most exciting project that we have been working on for so many months is that we have contracted the development of a database management system called ORCA to help us better manage pod registration. And so this platform will hopefully be released in two weeks. We're getting down to the wire now. <laughs> we are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, then finally, Lauren and I also 
co-founded an initiative called the Black Women's Collective. Um, and so how that got started was that the Black Women of the 500 Women Scientists Leadership Team, we wrote an open letter uh, this past October. And that was in response to the lack of justice in the murder of Breonna Taylor. And so this collective was formed for, from the necessity for Black women in STEM to have a dedicated space and to also um, embrace their culture and identity, to speak their truths, and to finally advocate for progress and accountability while continuing to uplift Black women um, in their science and advocacy work. So we have some exciting things that we want to do this year, and we're currently working on getting the funding we need to make these opportunities a reality. So stay tuned. Sorry, so the only thing I'll add about that um, is that like our pod network is really great because we like, um, so we have a national leadership team as Nicole mentioned, um, but we really, we really uh, ask our pods to also focus on the needs of their communities. Um, so we have some really active pods. Seattle's one of our active pods, St. Louis. Um, and so Boulder, yes. Um, and so we have pods that, you know, they may not have, or Sometimes they push our initiatives more broadly, and sometimes they do things that are local to their community. I know Seattle has written different um, like press releases and things related to things happening in Washington. Um, and so that's kind of the whole idea is like we have you know ideas that we think of how we can make it better, generally speaking, but um, no one knows the needs of their communities like those in the community. And so that's how the pods work um, and that that is how we are grassroots like they are our roots uh, to enact change at a very, you know, global level. So are there any other projects and initiatives that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, um, so in addition to our fellowship Wikipedia Engage, we also have our Simon's Journeys, which um, is they have, it's our, we call our teams wolf packs. A lot of these are nods to animals. Um, so uh, our Simon Journey uh, Wolf Pack, they, you know, talk about, you know, the motherhood tax and how it is to either, you know, try and have a child or to have a child and how that kind of impacts your career, um, how, especially if you're going after tenure and you have to take time off, um, also about like parental leave and how it, that's not what it should be for people. Um, and so what's really great about our organization is that we try to have kind of two realms, like one of advocacy, but one also like activism and holding institutions accountable. And so what our SIMOM journey team is talking about doing once we're back to going to conferences in person is to have a rating system. Um, so that way it can rate conferences for how they have like lactation spaces and um, uh, like uh, childcare services and things like that, right? To make to make it accessible to parents, to make it easier on parents. Um, our team also wrote a letter to the National Science Foundation, which is just a, a really prominent funding agency and asked them to postpone their uh, grant deadlines for like early career scientists. Um, it was not successful, they did not do it, but to have the gall to write that letter, to make those asks, um, that's, that's what SciMom is doing and has me excited. Um, and then we have a couple other new projects on um, the burner. And one of them is an honoraria speaking engagement transparency project. So for a lot of us, we're asked to speak and we're asked to speak and we usually are not offered payment. 
And if we are off for payment, it's probably sometimes, right? They're going to lowball us. I think especially as women of color, we are notorious for not getting paid our worth um, if we're paid at all. And so this project is to be incorporated into our gauge database. Um, but that way there's a transparent way where you can go and see where people who are in your field at the same type of seniority level, um, what they're making for speaking engagements, whether it's like a keynote or like a webinar. So you know how much you should be asking for when people request that you speak for them. So the idea is to really like create these resources um, and opportunities for people to do right and, and, and to be able to do right easier. Because I think that's a lot of the problem is people like say, oh, I want it, I want to be inclusive, but I don't know how. Um, and so providing some resources like, hey, here's some starter things. This, by no means do we have all the answers. Um, I don't think anyone does, but I think instances right where we can make it easier for you to be equitable, inclusive, accessible, let's do that. Like let's do our part. And if we have, if we give you these resources, you have no excuse not to do it. Yeah. I feel like that is a huge thing. Um, I feel <laughs> that a lot of people want to there. I feel like there are three parts of it, right? Um, you can acknowledge that these problems exist and that racism exists. And then I feel like the next step is talking about these problems in our communities. And then the next step is actionable change. And a lot of people, especially in academic institutions, tend to focus on the first step or the second step and not the third step. Because the thing is, is that the fourth step is healing. So if we just skip the third step, we're never going to get to the fourth step. Um, and I sound like Ian Van Zant right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fix our life. <laughs> with speaking, I've spoken to many other Black um, women scientists about this, where there's a lot of, okay, so we acknowledge that there's racism. So there are a lot of people in my department that will send an email. And at the bottom, it's it says some long statement of, I I acknowledge that I'm on Duwamish territory and I acknowledge that I'm this and this and this. That's great. What's next? Okay. Like, so are we really having those conversations? So you acknowledge it, but do you acknowledge how it functions, how your privilege actually functions? Do you acknowledge how your privilege impacts your actions and how you communicate with other people? And then the next step is actionable change. And, um, yeah, I think it's great that you're giving people resources to make that to make that step because a lot of people try to avoid that. I know personally, I've seen a lot of surveys sent out by the department. How are you feeling? Rate your anxiety here. Rate how inclusive you feel things are here. And then there are meetings to talk about it. Um, but there doesn't seem to be much beyond that other than, you know, taking in one or two students of color a year and kind of like that's the band-aid and um I guess the next thing I wanted to say is why do you feel the representation of women in science is so important and specifically the representation of black women in science I mean for me I'll just say that um thinking about it uh like being a young girl and just thinking like for them to 
I don't know, what am I trying to say? So that young girls can have the confidence to say, like, I want to be that neuroscientist or I want to be that marine biologist. And like I mentioned before, I think, you know, growing up, my parents did a wonderful job of teaching me about various women who were doing amazing things in science. But hearing stories of so many young women who never thought that going into a STEM field was an option is, is really sad. And so I think that's what really resonated with me. And um, that's a, one of the main reasons why I joined, joined 500 Women Scientists uh, was to you know, help amplify and highlight the amazing work that women in science are doing, but to also give a voice to black women in STEM. And um, I run two peer mentoring programs at Brown University, and one of them is New Scientist Collective, and it's for historically underrepresented students in STEM. And obviously, I'm the staff lead on the program, but I'm really looking for input from the students. So I'll, uh, we meet once a week, and I'll set the agenda, but then I tell them, please add to it. Like, I'm just here to support you. What do you see us doing to help with representation of historically underrepresented students in STEM, which is really important. Yeah, I um, I, I think this is a question I struggle with a lot um, because I, I feel very strongly about advocating for Black women to be represented, so to be present in a system that is going to abuse and misuse them. And that if anyone who gets out of it, it's like a survival, like I survived this system. Um, and I think that, that that is like the hardest part because it's like, yeah, like Nicole said, that representation is important. The idea that, you know, this is what you're interested in, then yes, you should be able to do it. Um, but I think we really have to prioritize more so getting, you know, more people into the pipeline versus then fixing the pipeline itself. Um, because it's, it's just, it, it can be really cruel, it can be really taxing. And I think that people drop out at an alarming rate. And that is because these systems are so difficult to navigate and they take so much from you. Like it, it shouldn't, like, I, I feel like, especially when it comes to um, graduate degrees, like doc, especially doctoral degrees, it's a grueling process. Um, and I think too, we have to think about like, I know, I remember when I started graduate school and like one of my close friends had to take out like an emergency loan because like they did not give us our stipends for like two months and you had no funds to relocate and so it was just like yeah a barrier after barrier um and then I was in my you know working on my PhD I spent four years in graduate school and then I left um due to you know abuses of my advisor who is like currently under investigation now she has a previous graduate student um, who was diagnosed with a health disorder after. Um, we had a research assistant who resigned due to a hostile work environment. Um, so it was just a really like traumatic experience. And when I think about that, and I think about coming on the other side, like, yes, I'm a neuroscientist. Yes, I can, you know, inspire, you know, other kids and I can you know, do my part. It's really difficult to say, we want more black women in science when we know it's gonna come at such a cost. That's true, yeah. I mean, I think it goes to like developing that support system or just having, I don't know, additional resources in place to help black women in STEM. 
Yeah, I, I think that like radical changes have to happen. And one, I think academic institutions, like none of them, I don't think any of them are radical. I think, right, like the fact that your your whole system is set up, right, like by being oppressive and capitalistic, um, like you all should resign. Like really, that's what it should be. Like you all should resign and start over, but you're not going to. And instead, you're going to release an email saying, hey, I support Black Lives Matter, but when this Black person emailed you and told you I was being abused, you look the other way, and my PI still has a job, and I don't have a doctoral degree. Exactly, exactly. I mean, they always tell us about, like, being accountable, but then... (laughs) Accountability. It's like, okay. But then, right, right, and, like, if I see one more email with saying that Black (laughs) Lives Matter, but them not doing anything about it, like, that just... It's performative. <laughs> it is performative, and that's yeah. what, and that, that's all they're set up to do. Because radically, you all could change it. Like I'm applying for, or yeah, in the process of applying to medical school, and just like medical school is a ridiculous process, anyways. But just thinking about right, you saw this whole summer of Black Lives Matter. You see how COVID impacts Black people, and yet I am certain there are going to be a substantial amount of Black people who won't get in. They're not going to get into any top. Most of them won't get into top universities, Absolutely. and you're like you're not you're not really investing in this. So it's just like it's performative. No, it's all talk. It's all talk, but no action. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, and then I'm like the angry black woman in the corner saying like, well, what are you going to do about? It? And then they're like, oh, well, we're scheduling meetings or where? I'm like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Like, how dare, how dare you make us actually have to do something beyond an email? Um, (laughs) And you mentioned something before about how we need to make, we need to basically protect Black scientists by giving them more resources and supporting them more and making this process easier on them. Um, Not actually, easier isn't the word. making this process more equitable so that it is not intertwined with so much suffering. And when you go to seek a degree and to seek an education, you should be able to focus on that without having who you inherently are as a person get in the way of your lived experience in a research institution, academic institution, or medical institution. And one example of that that I think of is having more black therapists at these academic institutions. So currently at University of Washington, the counseling center only has, I believe about 15 to 20 people total and only one is black woman. And the school is very, very large. There are tens of thousands of students. And especially with everything that has happened lately in our country an acknowledgement of racism you would think that they would be actively trying to recruit more black psychologists because at the end of the day me being able to go to the counseling center and have appointments with a black woman who also got her phd like it's been very good for me and i personally didn't feel like therapy even really worked before that Um, So shout out to Sharice Williams, who also is an activist and a really badass woman. Um, But yeah, I think that there's more that needs to be done. What do you feel 
are some other ways in which institutions can support Black students? Uh, I guess another thing, um, well, would be to just hire more faculty. I mean, from experience, I don't think there's, I haven't seen one African-American woman faculty member in STEM. And it's like, okay, we're telling our, you know, young girls and women that they can be scientists, but then we're not even seeing a faculty member that looks like us. Like, what, what are we doing? You know? And um, another thing too is, you know, with the pandemic, um, there's a lot of, you know, low income students that currently go to Brown University. And like I said, they're just not being provided the necessary resources that they need. So it's, I feel like I'm kind of like struggling, like I'm going around in circles trying to, you know, advocate for students when, you know, nothing's, nothing's happening or, you know, nothing's being done about it. Yeah. And I think that it's not even as far as, as far as hiring Black faculty, it's not even just about the students being able to see other Black faculty. It's being able to talk with other Black faculty, be mentored by other Black faculty, learn from other Black faculty. And I personally feel that when positions are given to Black faculty in predominantly white institutions, especially if they are going to be the only Black representative or one of the only Black representatives, I personally feel like they should receive extra funds I feel like they should receive uh -huh. extra reparations in the, the job offers that they get, because right. if you're in an institution that has so few Black faculty, there is an extreme amount of labor that that Black faculty will then have to do to support the students of color that are suffering. And it's not fair, and it's just something that's kind of not spoken about. Um, and it's just an inevitable part of starting to integrate these spaces and it's really not fair that they should have that burden because um, that's not really their responsibility but as we know as black people it becomes our responsibility to support each other so i feel like that's the other thing too when people make job offers to black faculty they need to factor in that they also need to be paid for their time that it will take to support these other students and they also need to be given specific a specific outline of how the department plans on becoming more equitable in the future because I don't know how many people do this but I'm still you know I have I work my full-time job which is 40 hours I you know do stuff for 500 women scientists and then I'm still interested in specific students and what they're up to so I'll you know schedule a zoom call I'll check on them to see how they're doing like it's because I care and I want to know you know that they're doing okay. Um, also, I recently started this pilot program at Brown University, which is like a tiered mentoring structure. So it has one STEM faculty, one graduate student, uh, three to four mentees who are first year students, and then three to four mentors. And the whole, um, the whole goal of this program is to, you know, see yourself represented in STEM, and to, you know, embrace your culture and identity. And I feel really sad because there's no African-American faculty that are serving as mentors. And so it's, yeah, it, it's just really hard. Oh yeah. I think, 
I think the difficulty about that too is like you one I don't I don't believe in tokenization I don't think that's acceptable and I think that's what a lot of the universities do you know you have one to two maybe four you know token black faculty and then you beat them over the head with DEI stuff and you know and 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 that's to say right like one, not everyone who's Black, you know, shares the same ideology to even, you know, like fight for equity and justice and all of those things. Um, but then also like those positions don't have power. And so I feel very differently about someone who comes in as assistant professor um, versus someone who comes in, you know, at the provost level, right? Like the fact that I'm sure you can look at majority of predominantly white institutions and your presidents are white, right? Like they're probably white men. And, and so the powers that be really, because the system is designed to operate exactly how it's operating. And so they want to do just enough so that way it looks like they're doing something, but to keep everything in place, right? Because if we really change the systems how it needed to, they wouldn't have the power that they have literally killed and lusted for, um, for how many centuries? So I, I really battle when we talk about, you know, changes, we talk about changes like that could be a few more Black faculty, which are really small changes, which may benefit the, you know, Black students that are there and who need to see that and need to have those faculty with them. But then like, what does that do for the long haul? And it doesn't do enough for us. And so I, I don't have the answers yet. I think this is something I grapple with a lot, just of what can, like, what do we push for to have like short-term success? but also long-term and thinking too, black faculty go through the same issue that we do as grad students and that they are also mistreated and abused and powerless. Um, I don't know if you saw the story of Dr. Dinner at uh, Tulane University. Yeah, that was so- uh, It was, it's extremely disheartening. And she was someone who, when she accepted her position, um, they told her like, she was a program director of their medical and PEDS residency program. That's what they offered her. And like, I think it was someone high up in the, in the university told her like, we're afraid you, know, you being here will mean that white, white students don't feel accepted because she's, she's a black woman and a dark skinned black woman at that, I believe. And like, what? yeah, and so she has a absolutely ridiculous. Thank you. She has a whole lawsuit that is, I stopped reading, I think after like 15 pages of just the microaggressions, the abuses, the indecency, how she didn't get promoted when she should have just a whole list of things. And it wasn't just her, it was her students. So she had bought in more students of color, like one of her incoming residency cohorts were all women of color. And those cohorts can't be usually more than like five or six people. They were all women of color. And then they all were subjected to that same treatment that she is. So that's when we have to really look at ourselves and ask ourselves, what systems are we buying into? Um, how do we go about it differently? I don't, I don't know the answers. Um, I've never attended a HBC. HBCU, um, I will be for uh, medical school. I've only been at predominantly white institutions. Um, so I'm really interested to see and how, like, how that looks differently. And I'm not saying all institutions don't have their problems, but I think we really have to ask ourselves, you know, what are we buying into and how much do we want to convince a system that has told us time and time again that they don't want us, don't appreciate us, to then accept us and then force them to treat us well. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know what resources we have or we can say now that really show that, you know, 50 years from now, we don't have students in the same position that we're in now. 
what type of toxic dynamic can exist between Black students and their white professors and faculty and their lab spaces? And why does that complicate learning? And how does that complicate finishing a degree? I think I, I wrote about this. Um, I, in undergrad, I wore a I Can't Breathe shirt in honor of Eric Garner. Um, who was murdered by the NYPD. And I remember going into lab at my PI, and I actually really liked, I really loved this woman. Um, she's a white woman. And she, I, we were kind of like down the hall from each other and she saw my shirt and she was like, ha ha, somebody get that girl some oxygen. And it was like, <laughs> something like that. And I was like, I just like my jaw drops. I'm just like, I know she did not. And so I I resolved that as being like her ignorance that she didn't know like what that pertained to. Um, oh, no. It was something I was just like the God. Oh, no. But I'm like, then again, like my, my reality is not your reality. And the things, you know, I think about you don't, they don't even make the news for you. Um, so I've had like different instances like that. I remember being in class and having um, a group of white students next to me talk about like the protests. I think this was after Mike Brown was murdered. Um, and they talked about it so like cavalier. Like, they were making jokes. And I just remember sitting there boiling, like ready to set the whole place on fire, you know, to argue about it. And I didn't. And what I've had to learn, which is toxic in itself, right? It's like really choose my battles and to choose who I want to try and educate or else because I'd be educating everyone. And so I know I'm certain, you know, that makes it harder for me to learn. It makes it harder for me to pay attention. Like emotions are big. They have a big um, impact on, right, how we feel, how we learn. Um, and I had several conversations with my PI or my uh, principal investigator. We worked with stroke patients. And so I'm in Atlanta and majority of our stroke population are Black patients. And not only are they Black, but a lot of them are uninsured. And there were some patients who were like, really have a distrust of, you know, the scientific system and participate in research. And I told my PI that, and like, she, she, she was, she is German. And I remember her telling me like of an instance when someone didn't want, she's a MD, PhD, when someone didn't want her in the, in the room because she is German and they were Jewish. And I, and so she said like, oh, I understand what you go through. And I was like, hey, no, you're one instance of that is different from everything. I, I routinely had people think that I was like the like volunteering lab. Like I was the grad student um, and I'm black. And then we had a, a white and an Asian research assistant. And so I led everything and people really didn't think that I was the grad student. I've been mistaken for the, uh, for janitor janitorial services. Like it's just been like constant, like, I don't think you belong here and I'm going to check and I'm going to ask you who you are. And I'm going to ask you like, who, who do you belong to? I've been asked who I belong to and things like that make it very difficult to just show up and exist and learn and contribute because I'm constantly being checked for, asked about, and people doubt I, you know, I can be the graduate student, you know? Yeah, that's so true. Uh, another thing that I thought of was I don't know how many people have told you this, but for me, I've had so many people tell me, wow, you don't look, or you don't act or sound black at all. And it's like, well, at the time I didn't think any of it. And I just kind of laughed, but 
now I realize that statement is really hurtful and it doesn't even make any sense. So it's like, where did that even come from? Um, and then uh, the other thing too, I was thinking of um, before I worked at Brown, I was, so I was in Hawaii to get my marine science degree. And so I was there for six years and you know, I got my degree and I was looking for jobs and I don't know how many job applications I submitted in the past, way too many to count. Um, but there was this one job that I was really excited about. And one of my um, friends was on the hiring committee. And I remember overhearing him say that they wanted to only hire a certain type of person, which of course wasn't me. And so, you know, th that was so hard to hear because I knew I was more than qualified. And it's like, okay, if you're only going to hire a certain type of person, why am I doing this work? Like, so just feeling like you're not wanted or I'm just going to give up. Like, does it even matter? So that was, you know, annoying. I'm sure that, you know, other Black women have similar experiences. And then, you know, just being in large STEM classes, and my students tell me this all the time, they're just, they freeze up and they're terrified to answer questions or even ask questions because you second guess yourself and you don't want people to make fun of you, you know? Oh, that's, that is such a real thing. And I think that it just got worse the more degrees that I obtained. So like, the higher up the ladder you go, like the imposter syndrome actually gets worse when I had expected it to get better. So I expected to feel more comfortable over time. And I expected to um, be respected more over time, um, which was, I guess, a pretty foolish thing to expect. Uh, but I definitely know that in my graduate career, I have felt really uncomfortable asking questions or if I ask a question and somebody answers it, but it's not what I feel is really answering the question or not answering it clearly, I feel like there's a lot of pushback and there's a lot of resistance and that can make it really hard to learn because that is a microaggression. And I don't like the term microaggression because it's not little, because if you're not able to finish your degree because of it, this is huge. But there are just ways in which I feel that faculty can acknowledge their privilege um, and acknowledge inequity a bit more to understand that people may need things explained to them differently and that an inherent part of graduate school does not need to be suffering. Yes, yes. Um, Suffering will happen, but it doesn't <laughs> need to, like, I notice a lot of faculty are like, well, I, I suffered, so you suffer. And that is not conducive, especially when it's not conducive to actually finishing your degree and to actually learning, especially if you're already coming in to the laboratory situation and you're an underrepresented minority and you already feel that you're not good enough and you already feel really nervous and you already feel like everybody's speaking a totally different language and I personally think that this is part of decolonizing education. It is okay to take an extra few minutes to clarify a point. And I think that there's a lot of looking past your ego or even just acknowledging the differences that your students of color may have and how they learn 
um, just based on their background and not even just how they learn topics. Cause I mean, we're all human, but how they need to be communicated with, if that makes any sense. Um, and that there needs to be an effort to increase encouragement. There needs to be effort to advocate for your students' mental health and also support your students' activism and personality and life outside of laboratory work and getting papers and getting data. Um, because I feel like if you accept, acknowledge, and uplift your student in other ways, the rest will fall into place and they'll feel more comfortable in that environment. Yes. And as long as things are appropriate and professional, um, I feel like that's super helpful. And I think we also need to break down what professional means and what a lot of people deem as professional is white. And, you know, that kind of goes back to the angry black woman thing. Um, and it's very hurtful for black women to hear that they're not being professional when they try to advocate for themselves and for their people. And we need to reframe what professional means. Right. Or for having like straight hair. Like I always wanted to just kind of fit in and to, you know, look like everybody else. <laughs> and so now I'm like having straight hair is too much work. Number one. <laughs> Number two, I don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I completely, oh my God. Quarantine was great for my hair because I had been getting relaxers and I'm 26 now. I'd been getting relaxers since I was like 13. Same. And then when everything Same. shut down, like I couldn't straighten my hair like that anymore. And so it was this whole journey. And then I transitioned into like protective styles and then um, have honestly been taking way better care of my hair. Like I always felt like having my hair relaxed would make me fit in more. And it's not like I, I you know, it wasn't a, a co I wasn't cognizant of it, but you feel like, oh God, like you feel nervous walking into the lab with braids. Oh, absolutely. But when it yeah. came to court, and that's what I don't think a lot of people realize, like you feel nervous and you feel like you're looked at weird. And oftentimes you are like the expression on people's face, even if it's out of like awe, it, it's still creepy and I don't like it. Um, it's so weird. Or, yeah. Or let me touch your hair. Yes. They always want to touch. I remember um, I had come into lab. I was going to Miami for a bachelorette uh, weekend that I was co hosting. Um, and I came into lab. And sometimes I wear my hair like I change hairstyles quite often, but I'm typically natural. Um, and I came into lab and I had 82 inches worth of braids I had 82 inches it took so long to get because I knew I was about to stunt in Miami and when I tell you like the postdoc in my lab looked at me and she was like oh is that your hair and just like me looking at her like mind your business you know what I mean because we're put in this position all the time where it's like oh is that your hair can I touch it or what'd you do and it's just like it's not your business uh and, and I don't want to, every time I change my hair should not be a talking point for lab to discuss. And that's what it's always been. Yeah. Yes. yes they want to touch. And everybody crowds around and it's like, oh, what hairstyle are you going to get next time? Yes. And it's like, why does it matter? It's very like on display. Um, and I don't like it at all. It's yeah. terrible. And no one asks you, right? Like, are you comfortable or like ask you private, right? It's something that's made like a 
whole thing. And it's just, I, I, I am someone who feels very strongly about professionalism. Like it is heavily rooted in anti-blackness and wanting to control people's bodies, women's bodies. Um, so like the fact that we can, you know, wear our hair, you know, have tattoos, have piercings, change your color of hair. None of that has to do with our intelligence, our level of skill, what we bring to the table. So it's like you judging us for not fitting into this really small mold is just unacceptable. Um, and I wish, especially um, like higher ups thought more about that. And like self-expression is a beautiful thing. But beautiful it thing. is also for you. It's not for other people. And yeah, I mean, at this point I have like, yes. I don't know if you could see from the video. Oh, it's, it's super dark in here, but I have purple <laughs> braids. Like it's like an ombre oh. purple. I have to like turn my... See, now you can kind of see it a little bit better. I also have this like weird background. So I've completely stopped caring. I remember <laughs> I, I was so thing. scared the first time yes. that I had braids <laughs> and I walked into lab and I just got to the point now where I'm like, this is so much healthier for my hair. It's so much more fun. But I do have to say, I wonder if we weren't in quarantine, if I would have these purple braids, because I wonder, you know, because there were way more people in the hallways yeah. then there, you would see way more people in your lab than you do now. I'm usually alone yeah. now. Would I feel as comfortable to wear hairstyles that by a lot of people would be perceived as unprofessional or ghetto? And so that's something to think about too, is that I have right. a bit of an increased feeling of comfort being in my institution because it is mostly isolated mm -hmm. and desolate now. And that is a shame. That is a shame because there's so much that can be yes. gained out of direct interaction with people in a laboratory or research or even just schooling setting. And it is a shame that we have to enter those settings, second guessing the hair on our head. Right, which has nothing to do with our and I look how good. smart we are and what we're, you know, <laughs> it, it's ridiculous. Why, yes! why is this a topic of conversation? Yes, like, right. I, and I think that is like such a huge thing. Like we do these things and we look amazing doing them. Like we did, like, you know, we're still of our culture. We can still represent our people. And like we, I think at a certain point, like, right, we all compromise to a certain extent to be in these spaces, but like to be able to be true to yourself is huge. And I think like that's something then that, you know, PI or yeah, your like bosses can do now, right? Is create the space where you do feel comfortable. Like my co-advisor, he, he's a white man, he's young and he's always been, I've always felt comfortable around him, comfortable like talking like I do without having to like change like my professional voice or like, you know, and like talking about black things that are totally unrelated in lab. And I think that type of discourse and having that comfort and being able to even go to him crying when things aren't working out. Like if you're, you know, if you can create that type of environment for your students and stand up for them when other people come at them wrong, I think that's huge. And at least that gives them, it gives them an ally. And I think I sometimes don't like the word ally for how it's been used a lot. But in that case, having someone really who has your back and who's ready to defend you, who is in a position of power, I think that's that's huge. Yeah. So is there anything else that you feel like we should talk about to just sum it up? I guess one thing maybe I'll ask is how do you feel like you're able to cultivate Black joy for yourself as a Black woman scientist? And what advice might you have for other people? I love that. I love ending on a happy note. 
Um, right. <laughs> that makes me happy. We got it because some of these episodes are heavy, Lord. I was, <laughs> I was interviewing an inmate and tell me how he like left it on the best note. He is so empowered and he's phenomenal. But I was like, yeah, oh. ready to cry. Oh man. I, um, I feel my Black joy as a Black scientist comes from just taking a break from science and like reading. I love reading. I love working with children. Like I work with children in a very, like, it's not my work capacity, but I love when I can see a, a Black child and help them feel good about themselves, help them read a book, help them learn a new TikTok dance. Like that, that is everything for me right now because it keeps me grounded. It keeps me rooted. And I know that regardless of how hard you know, the fight is outside when I come home. I got, you know, my man who is amazing. I got my sister, I got my nieces and I got, you know, the black culture and black culture for me is everything. And it always refills me up. Yeah. Me and my mom and my sister, we started this book club. So it's, um, yeah, we found it online. It's like 52 books written by different women of color. And so that's kind of, usually we see each other more often, but now with COVID, we don't have the ability to do that. So we get on Zoom every two weeks and like chat about, you know, just how our day is going. And then we chat about the book. So it's a good way to feel connected. And I also, I have um, a husband and two dogs who are both two years old and they are awesome and sometimes super loud and annoying, but I don't think I would be able to the dogs or the husband? Oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> the dogs, the dogs. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I know, right? That's Tell the funny. truth. But yeah, they've just been like my lifesaver, you know? I, I take them on walks. They're, you know, in my, in my room, you know, giving me hugs and kisses. So they really helped me to stay... Um, to take breaks. And I think also 500 Women Scientists has helped me to do that. I mean, I'm still working on it, on saying no and like, you know, prioritizing my mental health, but I'm working on it. Oh, yeah. I think for me, it is making sure that I take care of myself. So making sure that I'm going to therapy, making sure that I'm journaling, making sure that I'm also taking time to do creative things. So lately I started making earrings um, and those are actually really beautiful and cool. And I might start selling them for the movement. Um, There's this inmate commissionary fund that I've been thinking about supporting, um, but making sure that I'm not just working like a robot. And that is super hard for me. And I think it's super hard for a lot of overachievers. It's super hard for a lot of people that are doing a lot of things or are overworked and stressed mentally and physically. Um, Really making sure that I'm taking the time to like cook myself meals and meal prep. And it might feel easier in the moment to just kind of do these things that are instantaneous and kind of like instant rewarding in an instantaneous way but kind of investing in myself and thinking about how can I really help myself in the long run whether it means reevaluating my behaviors and my role in this movement and if it means having tough conversations with other people if it means having tough conversations with myself and honestly nobody turned down uh, meditation meditation actually really has helped me lately 
and just breathing exercises and just really trying to ground and center yourself and sometimes just get off of social media. So that's how I feel like we can best cultivate Black joy, but I understand how incredibly hard it is to feel like that's possible. Um, Just being Black women, but also being in this pandemic and, you know, dealing with winter weather, it is really hard. And um, I'm just going to make an effort to be gentler with myself and be gentler with other people. Yes, I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, thank you so much for coming, guys. Um, Do you want to share any resources so that people can find out more about your work or find out more about 500 Women Scientists? Yes. So you can find us at 500womenscientists.org. And we're on all major social media platforms at 500 Women Sci, so S C I. Um, and we have a lot of good things coming in. So you can figure out how to join a pod um, or join our gauge database, please. If you're a STEM expert, get on that. Um, and yeah, just stay on the lookout. We have a lot of good things coming and we want, we want to help people. So get with us. And how do you spell gauge again? Oh, gauge is spelled G-A-G-E. So that's gauge.500womenscientists.org. Um, Right. So if you get on that gauge profile, it's very similar to like LinkedIn. And I just made a profile. You can highlight what some of your interests are, what some of your research experience is, and you can connect with other people. So I think it's a great resource. And as um, they've mentioned before, 500 Women Scientists is inclusive. It's not just for women and it's not just for Black women. And um, it's not just for people with their PhD or people who have an MD. It's for anybody who's invested in science and, and want to start a career or some sort of activism or outreach or initiative in that field. So definitely want to direct people there. And on my website, I'll have links to 500 Women Scientists um, and other resources. But thank you so much for being a part of this, guys. Thank you for and having it's us. Just, it just yeah, makes me you. feel right. It makes me feel so much better because yes. it's just so rare that I get to like have these conversations with other black people and especially other black scientists. So it's definitely, you know, this is like a part of our healing as well. Yeah. Thank yep. you. Thank you, everybody. Please visit decolonizingscience.org to see sources for today's episode. The goal of this podcast is not to be your weekly standalone acknowledgement of racism. Put in the effort to continue your education based off of what you learn in these episodes. Follow at DecolonizingSci on Instagram and Twitter. Email DecolonizingSci at gmail.com if you're interested in speaking on the podcast or making recommendations for future episodes. Decolonizing Science is written and produced entirely by me. So please Venmo or Cash App Decolonizing Science to make future episodes and promotion possible. If someone you know is struggling with depression or thoughts of suicide, please visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org or call 1-800-273-8255.